2: legal counsel to President Trump, Jenna Ellis.
0: Good morning, and it is a great morning to be back with you, our AFR family. And I was reading this morning uh, Lamentations 322 through 23, which says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. And I just love that verse. It is so true, and it reminded me of... Uh, when all growing up, uh, we used to listen in my family to uh, the old Maranatha praise band. I don't know if any of you out there are Calvary Chapel kids like what uh, my parents were and uh, and what I was growing up in Calvary Chapel, but um, we used to listen every Sunday morning. My dad would turn it on before church and we would listen to Maranatha praise band. And they had uh, that verse that was turned into a song that has become one of uh, the greatest songs that—that that is always so encouraging to me. So, um, I just want to tell all of you, thank you all so much for your encouragement and um, your love, your support, and your prayers. And God is good. And Uh, You know, as I've been looking at the news over the last couple of days, we're going to start with uh, Republicans that are choosing Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana as their nominee for House Speaker, just hours after Tom Emmer abruptly withdrew in the face of opposition from Donald Trump. That's coming from Newsmax. And you will recall back on October 3rd when uh, when the speaker's chair was first vacated, I had tweeted this, I support Representative Mike Johnson for speaker. He would be 100% the best choice. So I am actually really grateful. I would have loved to see Jim Jordan, I think um, Brian Donald's would have been Byron Donald's would have been excellent. I mean there are a lot of good Republicans. we have a really strong bench. Uh, but Mike Johnson has genuinely always been my choice and it's for this reason. Um, He is a stalwart conservative. He is a team player. He has been in Republican leadership. He knows how this works. And he's also not polarizing. He's not as firebrand as maybe your Jim Jordans or your Chip Roy's or some of these others that we know and love uh, here at AFR. Uh, But Mike Johnson is a a committed Christian. He's a homeschooled dad. All of you know that, you know his background. Um, But in terms of Republican leadership. I think he is one that could genuinely bring the caucus together and do an even better job for conservatism than a Speaker McCarthy. And if he gets there and gets to 217, and I hope that Republicans do it today because we need a speaker, um, this would make all of what Gates did in terms of vacating the chair and all of what we've been going through for the last few weeks, uh, totally worth it. But joining me now to give his perspective and discuss more is our good friend, Tho Bishop, who is part of the Mises Institute. And uh, Tho, what is your perspective overall on this speaker's race? Because I think we have um, kind of a, a lot of diversity of opinion within the Republican caucus. And I think a lot of people are just getting frustrated that it seems like nobody is getting to 217.
1: Right. I mean, it's, it's been chaos playing out. But I, you, you had the call of the year, I think, with, uh, <laughs> with your early Mike Johnson uh, tweet. And you know, it, it's, it's interesting because ultimately the, the process to, the, of the motion to vacate was always going to be justified or, or you know, critiqued based off the outcome. And I think that if, if we actually get there, and, and there seems to be a lot more positive momentum now, um, Than there has been the past. He's already outlasted Matt Emmer. Now, part of that comes from just the, the hour that he was made at the nominee. Um, but uh, it, it seems that a lot of the divides that have existed might, be, whether it's being eroded down from frustration, um, you know, and I, there's members last night, there's a few that voted present, um, Thomas Massey being one of them, but I think he's someone who'd be worked in. Um, if we can land the plane with Mike Johnson, I think this would be a, a major, major win um, for the caucus. I think it would vindicate this entire process. And you know, this is actually you know, it's a rare moment in modern American politics where we've had an, a, a genuinely uncertain outcome uh, within this sort of procedure. And I think that is, is a positive thing for democracy, if nothing else. And uh, we'll see if it gets done this, uh, maybe later today.
0: Yeah, and that's a great point and something that uh, Representative Bob Good said on this show shortly after uh, Speaker McCarthy was ousted, that they would have a genuine speaker's race and there wasn't a candidate in mind. And uh, the the eight Republicans that voted to oust McCarthy got a lot of flack for that because there were a lot of people, um, you know, including me, that questioned whether they should have had sort of an heir apparent. Um, but at the same time, going through this process, um, if we get to a Speaker Mike Johnson, I think the whole thing will have been worth it. And you mentioned uh, Thomas Massey and a few others as well. And and Tom Massey, I know, I know very well. In fact, I almost worked for him at one point earlier in my career um, as his comms director. And so I've known him um, personally for, you know, for years. I support him. Um, and 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 the difference to me between someone like that who is so conservative, he always votes his conscience in line with the Constitution, and somebody like Mike Johnson, is that I don't see somebody like Thomas Massey wanting to actually do the work of the Speaker. Um, it, because a lot of it is very procedural. It's about getting people together, negotiations, some of that. And, and I see... That um, not really being the forte, perhaps, of um, a lot of the great Republicans, even somebody like a Jim Jordan, who I frankly was surprised to see even run for speaker, because I didn't think he actually wanted to do the job of speaker. And so to me, this this makes more sense that somebody like a Mike Johnson and even why Kevin McCarthy was the choice to begin with, is because some of these people are more uh, predisposed to want that type of administrative capacity that I just think some of the other members probably don't. Um, Is is that fair to say?
1: I I think you're entirely right. I mean, there's different roles for people in Congress. You can be an effective member of Congress in a variety of ways. Um, Part of that's going to be consensus building. Some of it's going to be uh, the fundraising side is being able to build up resources for other members in more vulnerable districts sometimes. And we, we need those people that are always going to push sort of the Overton window to the right. And Thomas Massey is certainly one of the members that is very good at that. Um, now, the problem is when those different roles, what, what, what is the end goal that the member is trying to achieve if it's you know, fundraising for the point of view of watering down the caucus, bringing in people who do not necessarily represent – Majority Republicans. That's where you have, and DC is really good at sort of you know corrupting some of those incentives there, and and so that's where someone like Mike Jordan, who you know, the fact that we might we might have a Speaker of the House who is a you know, distinguished be you a know, constitutional lawyer, I mean that that would be the, the biggest upgrade. I mean, he did not you know how many people in Congress have actually read the Constitution. Here we actually have someone whose <laughs> whose who's career um, was was built on on making constitutional legal arguments. Um, and someone who, who has a strong background in defending religious liberty, um, I mean, one of the most important topics of the day. Um, and I was looking at his heritage score, um, is actually more conservative than Jim Jordan. Now, I, I know there's some other... You, know, you could measure that in a variety of ways, but um, uh, you know, this is not, a, you know, this, this is not a, a moderate member that's able to build coalitions. This is someone who actually stands on uh, conservative principles, um, but obviously has the respect across the board. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been great to see talent that would otherwise not really be in a position to do this, be able to use this opportunity to, to make concrete, substantive arguments. I mean, e- e- even the other members, you know, people like a Byron Donalds um, and the like that have been able to, to make their cases to their fellow members of the conference, given this period. I think this is a very good, pro- uh, very good aspect of you – again, know, this is something you would not see on the Democrat side. This is only possible in a conference that still has some belief in merit and ability over pure patronage and seniority. And so I think this is something that conservatives should genuinely be happy about.
0: And I'm speaking with Tho Bishop, who is the content director at the Mises Institute, and you can follow him on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tho Bishop. And um, he's been on my podcast quite a bit as well, and also on this show, on um, a lot of economic issues. I always learn a lot from you, Tho, and I always appreciate your analysis and insight. And um, one of the other things that, that you just mentioned, I think, is also important to underscore that uh, Mike Johnson has the ability and uh, to create this coalition across the board, including the more moderate Republicans and the people Uh, that I think McCarthy had difficulty wrangling in in the conference because Mike Johnson has already been in leadership but unlike someone that would be a more moderate member like Annalise Stefanik we as conservatives are getting the benefit of someone who is very conservative and across the board I think very trustworthy in terms of his dedication to the fidelity of the Constitution um, to staying within those margins and understanding the importance of I'm not just religious liberty Liberty, but also, um, you know, single uh, issue bills. I mean, some of these things that he's been fighting for a little more quietly in the conference um, than somebody like an Elise Stefanik. And so um, so the big question is, do you think he can get to the 217 and how many rounds are you predicting?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, we'll, we'll, we'll see it place out. I, I think if, if he is going to have a chance, I think it's going to be very, you know, that this will be very quickly. Um, resolved. If, if not, then you know we might be talking about another candidate tomorrow. Um, but ultimately, though, you know what, what we really need is, is, is a serious person at the helm of the ship, no matter what. Um, speaking of the economic uh, background that I have, you know we're in a very you know we're, we're in a true physical crisis right now. And so ultimately, you know if we do not have a serious person, the Speaker of the House, who is willing to, to to follow through on some of the promises that the fiscal conservatives. Got Kevin McCarthy to agree to when he was first made speaker, um, then you know the, the future of this country from an economic standpoint, I mean we, we have we have lost a lot of the uh, advantages of kicking the can down the road that the government was able to use for a very long time. And so you know, returning to single subject spending bills, um, making real cuts, um, you know, whoever becomes speaker is going to have a very difficult plight. And I understand that with divided government, it's not going to happen to the extent that it needs to happen in the short term. Um, But having someone serious, substantive um, that can build those coalitions, that can take on those difficult fights um, is vital not just simply for the current political environment, but ultimately for the economic well-being for for future generations because we've had enough unserious people in these positions for far too long, and it's uh, the American people that suffer from that.
0: Yeah. And, and, and that's so true. And this is why I really genuinely hope that we get a speaker today so that we can get back to doing the business uh, for the American people. And we actually have somebody uh, who is in the speakership that understands all of these issues that you just outlined and um, can genuinely hopefully use the majority in the best possible way. And also, I mean, this matters for 2024 and, you know, a lot of the down ballot, um, congressional seats and of course, down ballot from um, ultimately the, the top of the ticket, the presidential candidate that everybody focuses on. But this is important to not only keep the majority in Congress, but also hopefully to take back the Senate. And I think that um, whoever Republicans select as a leader is going to be very critical to a lot of those races because this involves fundraising, it involves a lot of things behind the scenes that people don't really think about when you're just watching um, you know, some of the, the, the news and the media hits. Um, so, in just the last thirty seconds or so, I have with you. Though, I mean, if if Mike Johnson doesn't get to two seventeen, and I think he's the perfect candidate for all of these reasons, who else could possibly get there?
1: Yeah, it's to be You know, it kind of seems that like we've been going going from swings from you know, establishment candidate to conservative candidate. If if this doesn't land the plane, then it wouldn't surprise me at all if you end up you know kind of re- re- returning to something like the McCarthy deal, where you have a more moderate member of Congress that has promises and kind of that conservative straitjacket. That's kind of what I was expecting until you saw a a lot of consolidation around Mike Johnson. Um, So I I hope it doesn't come to that. I think the judgment of the specific position matters more than the rules put around them. Um, But I I could see that being the outcome. Should we not uh, get a speaker today?
0: Yeah, that's, um, that's, (laughs) that's definitely possible. And I think if we don't get a representative Mike Johnson, then, That tells me we may have a vacancy for even longer than we anticipated because if he can't with all of the conservative credentials plus the uh the ability to uh be be liked and respected by the moderates then who are we gonna get i mean it's it's possible maybe somebody like an Stefanik but i don't think that the hard right um is gonna go for that so i really hope and i pray that uh we get that speaker today and with very little pushback but Tho bishop really appreciate your commentary again you can follow him at T-H-O Bishop on X, uh, formerly known as Twitter, and we will be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. If you're like most of us, you're paying way too much for healthcare. That's why I want to tell you about a ministry that has been meeting the healthcare needs of hundreds of thousands of Christians, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. Christian Healthcare Ministries is cost-sharing made easy. For over 40 years, this unique model has allowed believers to choose their own doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods since they are not insurance, but a faith-based alternative to insurance. Members not only get Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest-serving health share ministry, serving all 50 states. Share the good news with a friend, too. chministries.com slash AFR. Make the switch today with any time enrollment.
1: Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio.
0: Well, the world may seem like it's going crazy, but there really is a plan and there really is an enemy behind it. We have an enemy, he is real, and Christ has already defeated him, so let's live in that victory that is part of Know Thy Enemy, which is a six-part Bible study and video curriculum based on the hit film, Nefarious, which of course, uh, the co-author of this book and also uh, with Nefarious is our good friend, Steve Dace, and he joins me now. So, Steve, um, this is so important, and I've gotten so many questions from so many listeners and so many people about um, eschatology and end times, especially with what's going on um, with Israel, and uh, it seems like we're on the precipice of World War III, and it's always good for Christians to understand that this is a spiritual battle. And I think that because of world events, we're paying even more close attention now. So, um, what prompted you to write this book, and what should people understand about why this is so timely?
3: You know, one of the things, uh, Jenna, I, I patterned the book in the plot when I wrote it. I patterned it after Screw Tape Letters, and mm. if you if you read the uh, the preface of, of that Lewis wrote, the only part of the Screw Tape Letters that he for the screw tape letters, he writes in his own voice. He points out that, for much of history, uh, the church has fallen into one of two traps where the enemy is concerned, and that is to be too obsessed with them on one hand, or to act as if he's really not there and, and really not an objective material force on the other. And when we put uh, together this Bible study, uh, we wanted to we wanted to strike a balance between those two impulses. Uh, you mentioned, um, you know, people that are eschatologically minded, and obviously, with many things going on in the world today, that is uh, very prevalent and rightfully so in a lot of people's minds. I mean, if you look at go back and look at COVID, um, that was really the first time in human history we saw that it could be possible in an instant, without massive military engagement. No treaties were signed. No countries were invaded. Virtually every country in the world, regardless of hemisphere or form of government, or tradition, or heritage imposed, with limited exceptions like Sweden and a couple of others, imposed all these draconian measures on their people. All of them did. Largely the exact same agenda, like a Thanos snap, everyone did almost the exact same things. That's something that just would not have been, since Babel, would not have been possible in human history until now. And so those events are like what you said going on in Israel, make people contemplate the signs of the times, but I think when we do so, we often do so in, in sort of this ominous tone. You know, I, I, that's one thing ever since I became a Christian 20 years ago, I've never quite understood is why the looking forward to the return of Christ and the end times as some sort of conspiratorial flowchart uh, that must be deciphered um, and understood to the point of uh uh, of, you know, knowing every last member of the uh, Illuminati uh, and, 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 or, and, their, uh, and their upper echelon, I, I thought we were looking forward to that. Isn't, right. that. isn't that the glorious day? Isn't that what we're looking forward to when Christ returns? And I think what we've lost corporately in the Church, and in many forms, whether it is seeker-friendly, seeker-sensitivism, which essentially says, we have to create, make the church into a, cor- a corporation, and appeal to your carnal sensibilities to get you to come. Uh, whether it's the idea that the uh, the end of the age is something to be feared and conspiratorially confronting, we we have lost the notion of the sovereignty of God, mm. and 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 so churches engage in these platitudes to the people because they don't think the gospel message well. Sometimes they just do it because it pays well. But most of the time, I don't think that's really what it is. I think it's just they don't think the gospel on its own can, can, can convert people, can draw people. And so they've got, to, they've got to put their form of frosting on God's cake. And, and, and we view the end of the age as this kind of conspiracy, and we're afraid of it. Is this the time, as opposed to rejoicing, like, may this be the time? Because, again, we act as if the enemy is in charge here and not God. And we wanted to highlight the sovereignty of God in our, in our study of spiritual warfare. I, I, I lived it in the making of Nefarious. I've, I've been involved, Jenna, in politics from school board to president of the United States. I've, I, you know, by God's grace, I I've, I've built, we built, my team and I, we, we took a show out of Des Moines, Iowa, and built it into one of the largest national shows in the country. So I've, I've, I've undergone obstacles. I've, I've seen challenges. I've seen the enemy try to thwart things and and not make things happen. I've never seen anything at all like what I saw when we were making this movie. But then I saw God deliver in that spiritual warfare as well. Bring us staff. Bring us people. Bring us resources we didn't know existed or we had just when we needed them, right at the right time to make this movie happen and to get it out in this important message, to get it out into the public. And so, number one, we want to get the church back engaged in spiritual warfare. We are seeing more open examples of demonic activity and influence in our culture, maybe than ever before. But at the same time, this also means this is one of the greatest moments to see the, to see victory in Christ, to see your faith affirmed. Because while the making them nefarious was the most challenging experience I've ever had other than raising kids, it was also the most faith-affirming experience I've ever had as well.
0: Wow. And and as you're talking, uh, Steve Dace, it's reminded me, you know, Revelation is not a, brand, a Dan Brown novel. And a lot right. of Christians do treat it that way. And we don't have a view of the glorious return and the fact that we are uh, to be living out our Christian life, um, not just in terms of how America has so enjoyed religious freedom and, frankly, comfort um, over uh, the most our, our recent history, at least. And certainly, we've had um, periods of great trouble and peril. But I think for the current generation, um, for those of us all currently living, we don't have experience of the hardship that some of our forefathers did. And that may Mm -hmm. cause us to not really appreciate spiritual warfare as starkly. And and like you, I mean, the years that I spent in D.C., the demonic presence there is palpable and it's Mm -hmm. real and we need to address it head on, but not in a way that um, is almost fascination with evil. And I and I almost feel like some yes. Christians, when we talk about the demonic world or spiritual warfare um, and demonology and angelology, it's almost like there's too great of a fascination with the spiritual world without acknowledging that Christ is the head of that. And so how do we balance that by understanding the truth of that and acknowledging that this is a spiritual battle with keeping our fascination and focus on the truth of God in Christ
3: my my buddy comedian uh, Brad Stein says that if Catholics see Mary everywhere Protestants see the devil everywhere okay and and so you know guy g- gets fired from his job and he says oh man Satan's really on me this week hey no dude you didn't you you showed up late for work three days in a row and never called in and let him know so you you played yourself you know and so that's kind of what you're, you're describing a little bit. And I love the term you used, fascination. What you're really hearkening back to is the first heresy, Gnosticism. This is where the enemy comes to Adam and Eve and says, did God really say? There's another knowledge out there. He's holding out from you. His revelation isn't sufficient. You need to know more. You need to be just like him. Um, if you go and look at a lot of the more apocryphal books at the time of uh, of Christ or the time of the forging of the gospels in the New Testament, um, a lot of those were based in were, were, were called Gnostic Gospels, and they re- try to recycle them you know every few easters they'll bring those back out again. It's some new revelation when really these were things that were debunked thousands of years ago. And it's and it's part of our it's, that's part of our original sin nature that God's revelation isn't sufficient, that there must be something more that there must be something he held out held out uh, and and maybe only held it for the special people who have a certain level of, of understanding that they have come to uh, or he's just holding it out in particular for everybody and therefore can't be trusted, so there must be alternative religious systems or occultic systems to know to uh, to, you know, to unravel the secrets of of creation in the universe. This is embedded in us because we're sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, and we have to go back to my grace. Paul says his grace is sufficient for me, you know, And, and I think that God is not sufficient for many of us. And I and I say that as someone who's very driven, struggles with contentment, is always looking for the next battle, the next villain. So I'm indicting myself as much. My, you know, that's why I didn't say you, I said us, because I'm in this group too. I mean, it, but but in particular in this age, we are clutching to things as we see the culture unraveling. We're watching the undoing of Western civilization before our eyes, and so our, we are we are running to still a lot of earthly remedies to these situations. As, as opposed to God is the remedy, or Christ is the remedy to these situations. And I, that is part of the centering of our study of know thy enemy. There's not going to be some secret enchantments or, or codes or mantras, that that uh, you, apocryphal writings that you didn't know before that we recycled. This is just some old-time religion, good old Bible. And we acknowledge the spiritual realm exists. We acknowledge the unseen realm exists. Spiritual warfare exists. You're watching it play out in the natural, in real time, and in our world right now, but ultimately, to God be the glory. There isn't a square foot of this planet, as Abraham Piper once said, over which Christ does not proclaim, that is mine. All right? That Christ is Lord of all, as he proclaims himself in Revelation 3, the ruler of God's creation. And while we may not live in an age yet where the fullness of that reign is felt on the earth on a daily basis— We are to live and to pray um, as if, you know, His kingdom is in us now. That's the paradoxical nature of Christianity. We, We don't put off our faithfulness because the fullness of Christ's reign is not yet realized. We live in faith as if that fullness is realized to testify to His lordship to the world around us now.
0: And it's so well said. I mean, pre- continue to preach because um, I think this is the way that people and Christians substantively need to live now. I mean, going back to um, the, the Coulson book, how how should we then live? I mean, in light mm-hmm. of scripture and truth, and we should have hope, which is in biblical terms, a patient expectation of the fulfillment of God's promises. And we don't have to be concerned about the future or uh, have this, um, this, this kind of dark foreboding of when the end times may come or whatever is going to happen in our lifetimes. Um evil can does and can exist in the world. We can evil can befall us. But we know and and my pastor once said that we know that if we are Christians, whatever we experience in this life is the worst that it's ever going to get. Because we have right. joy abundantly waiting for us in eternity. And if we don't know Christ, then whatever fleeting pleasures and moments of joy we have in this life, that's as good as it's ever going to get. And I think that's so right. apt and, and well said. And we need to look forward to the return of Christ and, and, and then just simply live out our lives daily, walking in knowledge of truth and saying as, as the hymn in Christ alone, which is one of my favorites, until he returns or calls us home we will be faithful.
3: Amen. Now, my turn to say you keep preaching. But, <laughs> I mean, this, this goes to the end of our film. You know, there, there are two reasons why our film ended the way that it did. First and foremost is I literally put in my contract no cheesy conversion scenes because I've just seen that ruin too many faith-based films, and I didn't want that to happen to ours. But, but we wanted some form of a redemptive ending. And even though it may not on the surface meet the definition of what we have in our current sort of touchy-feely era of the church, a, a, a notion of redemption. What happens at the end of our film is, you know, James does the, the interview with Glenn Beck writing the book, a nefarious plot, and he has confronted the enemy and, uh, and he walked away with a W and he's here to warn the world. See, this is all about him. It's still all about him. He still doesn't get it. Even after being confronted with real evil, he see James is a stand in for the entirety of the culture. We're confronted with real evil all the time, and we still don't get it because we still don't want to turn to God. And so at the end, he watched out of that interview. He, told, he, he said, hey, great interview, James. Like, thank you. I did my part for humanity. I'm feeling good about me. He even pulls out his wallet, gonna give some money to a homeless gal, really show that he's on the do-gooder side now. He, he's on the light side of the force. He turned down the dark side, right? And the homeless woman looks at him and says, hello, James. In the voice of Nefarious, as a reminder to him, and she says, "Miss me?" As a reminder to him, there is no neutrality, dude. You didn't do anything. You had a gun to your you had a gun to your face in that prison in that prison ob- observation area, and pulled the trigger. And the only reason it didn't pull is you called out to God to save you, and He did. God is the one doing this work, not you. And without Him, you're just as vulnerable to these forces and to this evil as you were. Before the day before the day that you were formally introduced to them face to face, choose ye this day whom you will serve is the first Joshua says. And that's why our movie ends that way is that without that redemptive ending, without that repentance and that turning away from the darkness and walking into the light, you are still a child of darkness. There is no middle ground. Our, our culture has kind of fashioned this idea of this like, um, moral and spiritual Switzerland. You know, and that that realm—it's uh, it, like it, it doesn't exist.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and, and I think uh, our culture, particularly the the touchy feely uh, Christians, have very much romanticized this whole genre and and even the end times, either in a conspiratorial fashion, as you're discussing, Steve, or also just in the sense of like this epic battle between you know good and evil, and how you know the warriors always, and, and this is how a lot of um, the young men who want to be engaged in some of these battles. You know, they turn to um, some of the video games and some of these things so they can live out kind of that warrior spirit. Um, But we're, we're taking it in almost a romanticized version instead of recognizing that every single day it's a choice to choose walking in light of scripture and truth or yielding to our past sin nature. It is a constant battle. And so the book is Know Thy Enemy and it is a companion to the nefarious movie and a Bible study. And Steve Dace, always so appreciate your insights and your preaching and your commentary. I love your show. Thanks so much for joining. We'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the Morning. Did you know that every day, Preborn's network of clinics experiences 200 miracles? How? Preborn gives women with unplanned pregnancies a window into their womb through free ultrasounds, introducing them to the beautiful life growing inside. Once she meets her child inside her womb and hears their heartbeat, the chance of her baby's life doubles. Because of the generosity of you and me, who donate just $28 to sponsor an ultrasound, Preborn can do this. The cost of a dinner can save a life, the most worthwhile investment you can make. All gifts are tax deductible and go entirely to saving babies. Someday you may meet a baby that you rescued and you can give them a hug. Or maybe they'll give you a hug. Maybe they'll even save your life as they grow and pursue meaningful careers. One thing is for sure, you will never regret saving a child's life because life is a miracle. Please donate your best gift today. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com.
1: Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio.
0: Welcome back. And uh, speaking of in times and looking at what is going on in the world, we are potentially on the precipice of World War III, and there are a lot of people who are very concerned about this, and I'm so grateful that our good friend, uh, Joel Rosenberg, has been constantly giving us updates of what has been going on um, in the war between Israel and Hamas and Hezbollah, and he joins us again now. So, Joel, my friend, um, I'm so grateful that you and your family are safe and with everything that you have been through over the last month. Um, This has just been continuing. So what is the latest and what information can you share?
2: Well, Jenna, great to be with you. Thank you for having me back on the show. I'm talking from Jerusalem, uh, but just uh, on Monday, I was up and spent the whole day on the uh, Israel-Lebanon border. The real concern here is not just that we're fighting uh, against these bloodthirsty uh, savage ISIS-like uh, terrorists in Gaza, but that the whole massive new war is going to erupt in the north. Uh, all day, Jenna, as I was up on that border uh, with Lebanon, um, uh, Hezbollah uh, terrorists are firing uh, artillery rounds, anti-tank missiles, uh, and even full-blown missiles at, um, at uh, IDF uh Command posts uh, and Israeli communities, civilian communities. Um, Sixty-four Israeli towns, villages, and cities along the northern tier have already been uh, evacuated by the Israeli military. That's more than a hundred thousand Israelis uh, to get out of harm's way as Israeli tanks and troops are moving north. And why? Because um, there is a fear that that the Hezbollah terror force which is also armed and fueled and, you know, directed by Iran, is going to try to invade from the north as well. And that's uh, that's what I've been reporting on on all Israel news. And I'll be doing my whole show from that Lebanon border on TBN uh, Thursday night at 9 p.m. Eastern on what's called the Rosenberg Report. That's our half-an-hour news and sh- analysis show. And I'm telling you, I talked to some experts, four different experts, who say not only is that border going to blow – But that one Jewish man who's not a follower of Jesus, he's a former lieutenant colonel in the Israeli intelligence forces. He said, Joel, honestly, if we don't go to war and have a massive victory over Iran and Hezbollah, as well as Hamas, he says, then this is the end of days, and I fear for the end of Israel.
0: Wow, that is incredibly chilling. and. Uh, and, and I think that's where a lot of people are very concerned, that it seems like um, Iran, if they're not already involved, um, they soon will be, and there is a lot of speculation about China and moving toward uh, Taiwan, and you know some of these other uh, players and some of these other events that may unfold. And you had um, tweeted just about three hours ago that in the latest edition of the Rosenberg Report, and this is on the All Israel News uh, X page, um, Joel Rosenberg delves deep into U.S. policy regarding Israel, and so um, interviews with um, former U.S. ambassadors and so forth. Uh, what insights can you tell you? Can you tell us from those interviews in terms of the United States involvement and uh, where we're situated in terms of global affairs?
2: Sure, I'd be happy to, Jenna. So, uh, where do I start? So, I'll start <laughs> with the fact that uh, I interviewed. Uh, uh, President Biden's top uh, Israel expert, uh, a man named Tom Nides, who until just a few months ago was President Biden's ambassador to Israel for more than two years. Uh, Tom is, is is Jewish, not particularly religious, um, uh, very, very close to Biden and Secretary of State Blinken. And, and, I, and I got to know him and interview him a number of times while he was ambassador. But I said, look, it, it, with President Biden coming into the country, let me interview you and so i did and so what's interesting you know so of course from his perspective uh, nides ambassador nides perspective biden is super pro israel and flew in as the first ever american president ever to to enter israel during a hot war like no american president has ever done that in all of history so that does mean a lot to us and i and i say that not as a partisan just as a as an american as an israeli as a jew and as an evangelical Christian, it, and he has sent more than 45 massive plane loads full of American military equipment and, and, and supplies and ammunition, things that we urgently and, and almost desperately need. This is good. But I will say that I pressed him and others on my show on the Rosenberg Report uh, that night. Uh, uh, look, there is a concern that, um, we're, that Prime Minister Netanyahu is getting the bear hug on on screen and publicly now. But for the last year, uh, Netanyahu got the snub from President Biden, right? Uh, One one of the only top uh, important allies in the world who didn't get an invitation for the last 10 months to come to the White House and talk about the future of of U.S.-Israel relations and, and how to deal with Iran. So it's good that Biden has come. But we're also I just don't know at this point, Jenna. I'm trying not to be a partisan. I'm trying to be a, a journalist and an analyst. And I'm trying to say, OK, Biden is being very helpful at the moment publicly. But there is a real concern that privately he's telling Netanyahu, look, deal with Gaza, deal with Hamas. They're horrible. But do not, under any circumstance, expand this war and hit the Iranian nuclear sites and you know deal with the Hezbollah uh, force in Lebanon. If that's really happening, that's very dangerous. Why? Look, from your perspective, and anybody in America think, well, why would we want to expand the war? Well, I don't. We don't. But if we deal with the small Hamas terror force today and leave the Iranian nuclear program and its much, much larger and more powerful and more lethal terror proxy in Lebanon, Hezbollah, in place, then we're going to get a nuclear holocaust, not just... Uh, the savagery of October 7th. And so every single person I interviewed on Monday all along that northern border with Syria, uh, Lebanon, every Israeli said I am more fearful of Prime Minister Netanyahu not attacking Iran's nuclear facilities and Hezbollah and achieving a massive victory even though it's going to be painful. Um, They're more scared of that um, than of the death and destruction that will come from such a war, because we've now seen, they've now seen what Hamas has done to chop off people's heads and set Jews on fire and, you know, gouge out their eyes, chop off their limbs and and take it all on GoPro video and stream it to the world. This, This is sick. But what if they had nuclear weapons? And that's what and yeah, that's why I'm saying, Jenna, like, I, I do teach on Bible prophecy, and I've written novels and nonfiction books about prophecy. I can't tell you yet exactly how to put this in prophetic terms yet, because I think it's a little bit too foggy. I'm being honest. I don't think we should jump to a conclusion that it's this prophecy or that prophecy. But it feels prophetic. It feels apocalyptic. And it, and it, and it feels like it's about to get much, much worse.
0: Mm. And and I think you're right that it, it is good uh, for us as Christians to not jump to conclusions in terms of Bible prophecy, but also to look circumspectly and and look at what's going on and not just uh, turn off the news or stay away from it because it is so disturbing and horrific. Um, and so how, if anything, do, does... Uh, this impact Israel if we get a new Speaker of the House and if Congress can actually do their job. Is that hopeful in any way in terms of the aid that Israel needs from the United States, or is is our hope mainly the Biden administration?
2: <laughs> well, okay. Now I just as a pure analyst, I have to say let's never put our hope in the Biden administration <laughs> alone, uh, Valid. or maybe at all. But but look. I, look we the Republicans have got to get their act together um for for lots of reasons or for lots of legislation important positive legislation that has to get moved forward including uh, emergency uh resupply ammunition for israel as we fight this war and you need a speaker to do it there's also other legislation that is horrible and that has to be blocked and that takes a speaker of the house also uh to, to prioritize what's happening and it doesn't look good uh, for the Republicans not be able to to get an actual speaker in place, so uh, that is one of my prayers. Um, but I will say that we just had ten uh, percent of the Senate uh, came over here the other day, um, led by Senator Lindsey Graham. And I, you know, Lindsey is a personal friend, but I don't always agree with him on everything. But he led he led a very strong press conference where every single member of the ten members of the Senate, I'm sorry, yeah, Senate uh, House, uh, sorry, Democrats and Republicans of equal numbers. Everybody was knighted um, that Hamas has to be eradicated that we will stand with Israel as long as it takes um, and that they are very concerned about Iran and they warned Iran if Iran gets uh, tries to expand this war um, that that they're basically messing with the wrong people uh, that was mostly appreciated, but the question is are they is that a veiled threat that Israel shouldn't take the fight to the actual enemy that's driving this fight. In other words, Iran is already involved. Iran's regime is the one that are arming, funding, training, and directing Hamas. And remember, Jenna, I mean, you know this, but I want to remind your audience, Iran has enriched uranium illegally, mind you, to 84%. Now, you don't have to get to 100% to have nuclear bomb-grade quality uranium that you can make fully operational thermonuclear bombs. You only have to get to between 90 and 93. So they're right. The Iranian regime is right on the threshold. And can, uh, can we really take this moment and say we're not going to take out those facilities when Iran is the one telling Hamas to slaughter our sons and daughters and our, and our grandmothers and grandfathers? You know, I, I've written about these things in, in novels, but I've got to tell you, Jenna, this stuff is, is becoming real very fast. And I don't see how Israel's government will survive politically if it doesn't take the moral high ground and say we have to fight and win whoever's against us. And in this case, it's, 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 one, it's one entity, Iran, but it has several tentacles, Hezbollah in Lebanon and Hamas in Gaza. And let me just note that there's another tentacle of Iran, and that's the Houthi terrorists in Yemen. And they're starting to fire missiles at us all the way from down in Yemen. We've never seen that happen before. U.S. naval ships shot down most of them. And the one that they didn't shoot down, the Saudis actually shot down to protect Israel. That's pretty amazing in this new world. But it shows that that Iran is trying to attack us from every direction and I think it's time to cut off the head of the snake. And I say that somebody who lives here and is going to suffer the repercussions, but I don't see another way.
0: And and eradicating evil is always a righteous mission, and um, particularly when the evil is the aggressor. And I'm speaking with uh, Joel Rosenberg, who is the editor in chief of All Israel News. And in just the last few minutes, I have with you Joel. And again, we are praying for you, and we so appreciate all of your updates and your time. Um, one of the pushbacks. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, and and we we absolutely are praying for you, and um, we want to know how we can best pray for you and support you and support Israel, and um and then this last question. Um, A lot of the media coverage has kind of built this contrast between America's support for Israel and why so many conservatives are not supporting any more funding to Ukraine. And isn't this basically equivalent? I don't draw that same equivalency. How do you think about it as someone who lives in Israel, who is um, a dual citizen in terms of the differences here, if any?
2: Well... (laughs) How much time did you say you had?
0: No, I'll try to give you the. Short <laughs> we'll bring you answer, back anytime.
2: Dana. I appreciate it. So the short answer is, well, well it's, it's not equivalent uh, funding and arming and standing with Israel and standing with Ukraine. Why? Because Israel is an actual ally of the United States that has been a long-standing partner. There's written obligations. There's a close cooperation. So it's not the same. But you know, me personally. I disagree with many of my Republican colleagues and conservative uh, friends and colleagues who think we shouldn't be uh, arming Ukraine. I think when when uh, I think you look, who are the two countries on the planet right now massacring civilians and trying to devour other countries? It's Russia and Iran. Okay, and the United States isn't being asked in either country to actually send boots on the ground and do the fighting. But Israel and, and our brothers and sisters in Ukraine are saying, just give us, help us with the tools we need, the weapons we need. We'll do the fighting and the dying, but don't leave us to these these, these monster predators alone. And I think, it, you know, I think, I go back to Reagan. Reagan didn't, when, when, when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, what did we care about Afghanistan back then? Honestly, it, it meant nothing to us. There wasn't any strategic value, but... President Reagan saw the value we can provide arms to the Afghan rebels and they can kill Soviets and bring down the Soviet Union Reagan was right then and I believe those who believe that you know you stand with Israel and you help Ukraine with weapons not soldiers I think that's the right and moral policy today in order that the United States doesn't have to send boots on the ground in other places. Like if Putin wins in Ukraine, he is going to invade the Baltics and he's going to invade uh, uh, Poland. And, you know, so you stop them now and you stop Iran now while you can.
0: And and we'll leave it there. Uh, uh, Jill Rosenberg, yeah. really appreciate it. We are praying for you. Let us uh, know how we can continue to pray for you. You can always reach me and my team, Jenna at AFR.net. Um, We love you and we support you, and we'll be back tomorrow morning with more of Jenna Ellis in the Morning.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio.
0: I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound?